to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stratton, happy to be bringing you this podcast today, wherever you are. Today we meet Mark, and his story will amaze you and astound you. If losing his partner Paul to suicide was not difficult, complex, and tragic enough, his experience after this will bring us new insights on what some people go through following the death of their loved one. This man's intelligence shines through. His insights are thought-provoking, they are challenging. He is a compassionate, professional and articulate man. His story is about overcoming adversity and isolation. He now works in the area of suicide prevention, a passionate advocate for changing the way that suicide is perceived by people and organisations. He gives us practical insights on reconnecting and recovering. He has been a carer, he has been bereaved by suicide, and he has overcome his own ideation. A wealth of knowledge and insight. It's a privilege to talk with him today. This story had a profound impact on me. I hope it has the same impact on you today. Hello, Mark. Thanks for joining us here on Rose's Radio Podcast today. Thank you, Lane. Good to be here. I want to take you back uh, for a moment uh, to uh, obviously what is an extraordinarily uh, emotional and traumatic moment for you. You came home on Sunday evening, one weekend, 
only to find that your partner of 11 years, Paul, had taken his life while you were away. Can you take us back through that? What was that like for you, that moment? Yeah, um, I'd been away for the weekend and we'd stopped. I hadn't heard from him for um, on the Saturday, so I decided to come back earlier than planned. Um, and I, as I was coming down the highway, I could see my apartment, our lights were on, so I was thinking, okay, he's just not been talking to me, so that's fine. Um, I had our two dogs with us and we unpacked the car and went up to the, the apartment and I opened the door and I called out his name and um, it was about nine o'clock in the evening, it had been a long drive um, and there was no reply so I sort of put the dogs down and put the bags in the room and um, went through the apartment and um, I found him crumpled um, beside our bed in the, the master bedroom. Um, he he looked dead. Um, I'd seen dead bodies before and um, I, I had a good idea of, of his status, but I still went over and um, put the obligatory fingers on the, the neck to see if I could feel a pulse. Um, but I realised that um, he, he, had, he was deceased. Um, so I'd done this professionally before. I'd come across um, people who had passed away in my various workplaces and... Um, I went into automatic mode and got the phone and dialed triple O. Um, and then when I was on the triple O call, uh, a lady called Betty answered the call. Um, and she, um, I'd asked for the police um, and I explained to Betty what had been going on. Um, and that I'd come home, I'd found my partner and he'd been deceased. Um, and I wasn't sure of how he'd exactly died. Um, so Betty got my details and, and I still remember to this day the conversation that I had with Betty. It was really brilliant. I don't even remember giving her all the details. Um, but she said to hang on the line until you know the, the people had arrived and um, she'd got things moving for me. So it wasn't long after I heard sirens arrive um, and I said they're here and there was a buzz on the door. Um, she'd sent ambulances um, and the guys arrived at the door and I opened the door and I said, I think she's got the wrong thing, mate. He, he's deceased. He, he doesn't need an ambulance. And the, the ambulance officer said to me at the time that um, he said he, she didn't send us for, for him. She'd sent it for me. And I think it was at that point that I realised that this was real and it was happening to me. Um, it wasn't a distant person or a stranger. Um, it wasn't a, uh, a guest in a hotel. Um, it was actually Paul. Um, and... He was gone. Had you any warning that Paul was um, feeling vulnerable at this point in time? I think um, about eight, ten months earlier, um, Paul had taken a, a first attempt. He, he'd okay. um, had a car accident um, and um, it, it wasn't a good situation. And I had rung his parents to tell, him, tell them that he'd had the car accident um, there, there were charges to be laid and doing all of that and he reacted really negatively to that. He had been suffering with a, a chemical imbalance and, and was on medication for that um, and his highs and lows were, were getting out of control. The medication wasn't working as well and as effective anymore. Okay. Um, and he took an overdose so we then had to um, treat that and that was the first time that he'd had, 
any indication to me physically that he would attempt on his life. He had told me previously that um, he he had thought that he would never be here as long as he had been because he he thought that suicide was his his ultimate end, that he he would die by suicide. Um, but he'd never displayed any reasons until that point to to give concern that he would actually carry that out. He worked in the mental health industry? Yes. Um, he was an acute psychiatric nurse. Um, he worked in one of the top hospitals um, in, in town um, and he used to, to work on the night shift, so he used to run the, um, the acute unit. So that was where the police would bring people with mental health that needed to be detained. Um, so he, he was um, well-known, well-liked and well-respected, but it was also one of the downfalls because he couldn't go anywhere to get the help that he needed because they were all the professionals and peers that he would be going to. So do you think that had a significant impact on him, that he felt that uh, somehow it would diminish him and his reputation if he went for help with people that potentially knew who he was and what he did? Yes, um, that, that was very big, uh, a big factor. He wow. also knew the system and he knew the failings of the system and he knew what would happen if he got into the system. Um, and he prided himself on trying to keep out of that um, because he just never wanted to go in there um, in, in that process. And that was the problem on his first attempt, on, on his only attempt, was that he was taken to um, not his hospital, another hospital, but they knew him and they knew of his professionalism and they knew of his standing, that they didn't treat him as a patient. They treated him as a colleague. So instead of giving him the treatment that he needed, he was left to sit in the corner and, and sit there. And then, you know, three hours later, I was called to come pick him up and take him home. Um, Almost on the basis that he should have known what it is that he needed to do for himself? Yes. Wow. But also on the basis that they didn't want to put him in the system because of the embarrassment that that would cause him and, and the knowledge that that would, would, would have um, for, for his reputation and his, his um, um, professionalism. He also knew how to play the game. So before the, the help arrived on that day... I, I couldn't control him. He, he was physically threatening me. He was, he was doing everything, and I actually feared for myself. As soon as the authorities arrived, he just sat down and became fully compliant, followed all the obligations. He knew exactly how to play the, the, the program uh, of what he needed to do. Um, he was very smart. He was very intelligent. Um, and sometimes that was his downside because he, he, he overthought and, and understood things far too, far too great to, to get the basics of what he needed to do. So your story up until this point in time is really that of a carer, isn't it? Yes. So uh, probably the last three to four years of my life were, were being a carer rather than a partner to him. Um, and we didn't know where that was going. We were looking at options. So I was prepared to move to New Zealand, prepared to move to Queensland, prepared to, to do anything that we needed to do to get him the help and the assistance that he needed to, to go. Um, my job was well paying, so he could have quit the nursing and just had a break from and you know the added added stresses of being a permanent night shift and working in the field he was working in well it wasn't helping his own health um, within that, that that process but there was nowhere for him to go there was no no support no no capacity to to help him with that aspect yeah so the ambulances arrive the police arrive and uh, the coroners um, does what they do and what happened after that for you, you know, you, you have all this activity and energy, and, and you're really focused. You're a very professional guy. You knew what you needed to do, but mm. then all of a sudden, you're alone again. Mm. What impact did that have? I, I guess that um, the the police were really good when the the police arrived there. Um, given that we were a same sex um, relationship, 
um, I was really concerned that they were going to get there and the family would take the dominant path and, and I would have no, no input into this. Um, because back then the legislation wasn't as protective of us um, as it may be today. Okay. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a recognition that we had any rights or, or obligations, even though we were together. Um, but the police officer, when he arrived, um, sat me down and he said, I want you to know that you're, you're my point. The family will be respected, but they are not the, the main point here. I can see that you've been together, there's 11 years, um, you're going to be the main person. And, and that was very fortunate because the coroner then treated me in that way as well because the police had the power to... Did to that be, surprise you? I was, I was shocked. Why I, were you shocked? I, I just wasn't expecting it. Right. It was the attitude and the approach that had been around for so time and the messages that you had out there that these things... And I'd seen it before in my, my career where the police come in and the family take priority. If, the, if it's not a wife, it, it becomes the parents and doing all of that sort of stuff. Um, and they can make a lot of noise and people just would back away from them at the time to, to do that. Were the family comfortable with that? Um, I, th- I think they were. Um, the family um, almost went into shame. It was it was quite amazing. The father particularly went into shame. What what does um, that mean? He he, he was um, shame of the son being gay. Um, so that all came to the surface. So he'd never really he didn't accepted. know. Uh, he, he had known. We we were. I'd been and met all of the family. It wasn't until the funeral that I realised that the rest of the extended family, like grandmas, aunties, uncles, and all that, had never known that we were actually a couple. They they and they also didn't know that he of his mental health problems. So all of this stuff came out of the family. Um, within that process and, and I was being dumped as quick as possible and, and executed out there and, and the, the last visit the, the father said we can't have you coming over here and crying all the time this is, this is enough and this was only eight weeks after he passed um, within the process so his father went back to him being a child before he you know Paul had always been gay um, he'd had problems in high school um, because of it the, the, you know um, the high school couldn't cope with it um, doing all of that sort of stuff back in the 80s. Um, his family had to, to deal with that confrontation in that early stage. Um, so his, his parents didn't really think too much of that, um, but they, they wanted the church service, they wanted the funeral to, to be managed, and they, they did. And probably one of my regrets is that they coordinated it a bit too much. I got some things in there, um, but there were um, other things that I, I should have stood up more for and, and sort of got for us as Paul and I, not as um, Paul the son. As a partner, did you feel isolated by this? Like, you it know... became more and more isolating. So it, it um, um, a people didn't know what to do, um, and the shame of the suicide back then it was less talked about than it is today, and there was not as much support around for for that um, within the process. So I had all of that to to deal with. Um, then. How do you react to a gay man losing a gay man? It's like people just couldn't cope with that. Um, and even in, in the support groups that I went to, it was just people were looking at me weirdly and would make odd comments going, but he was just your friend. You know, I've lost my husband, um, you know, one lady told me. It was like we were having this competition about who could feel worse about the loss. So they were minimising your bereavement or your grief on the basis that your relationship is somehow different to their relationship. Yes. It, it wasn't even valued as a relationship. It wasn't a mate thing. It was just, it was it was nothing. There was no value in it. I even had colleagues at work sort of, you know, six to eight weeks um, saying to me, 
haven't you really got over this yet? You know, it's sort of like you should be moving on by now. And it's sort of like I'm sort of sitting there thinking, how do I move on? What do I do? You know, it's sort of, um, I loved him, you know, and, and his illness just became like a, a cancer or, or any of those sorts of things. You just don't walk away from people because they've got that. Um, as hard and as struggle as, as it is. And there wasn't any community support um, at the time for, for, for carers and doing all of that sort of stuff. You just had to do it yourself, and that was where it was. As ignorant as some of those comments were by people, were they well-meaning? Like, was it just that people um, didn't know what to say? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a common thread in, in people's commentary to me. You could tell that they, they, they felt they had to say something, so they would just come out with it, you know. And some of the things that people said to me were just absolutely mind blowing. There, there was those ones about the that that were demonising who we were and what we were doing, and I should have really got on it. There were others that that um, wanted to let me know that you know I had a high chance of ending up like he did too, um, because that was the statistics and you know and stuff like that. Not offering any support with that, just telling me that that were the statistics. Hang on a minute, so. People were saying to you, Mark, it's highly likely that this will be what happens to you because of the prevalence of suicide in the gay community? Or They, they weren't necessarily directing it at me. They were just pro- pro- providing me the statistics. It wasn't the gay community. It was just suicide. I don't know where these figures came from. Right. But, you know, it was repeated to me on several occasions that, you know, people who were bereaved by suicide had a 60-70% chance of of attempting if not succeeding in suicide um after yeah, the event wow. and and but there was nothing to go with that there was just that broad brush statement i'm like sitting there thinking what do i do with that Where how do I is go that helpful it? exactly <laughs> how is that helpful and then there were other people that it's extraordinary it was just i remember at his wake um standing there and and the the wake was a mixture of our friends and and our family and his family and their friends um, so it was it was a mixture of people that were sitting in the hall. And as I say, at the service, some people realised when I stood up and the minister introduced me as his partner that that was the first time that they'd put two and two together. So some of these people, it was a bit of a shock type thing. All lovely people. They all came up to me and, and just said, wish we had of known and, and doing all of that sort of stuff. So I got a, a lot of positive re- response. His family didn't. He, his immediate father in particular was getting a lot of grief from his brothers and sisters because these were important family things and they hadn't been talked about. Yeah, wow. Um, but, you know, a couple came up to me and decided to share with me that they had been abused. I'm just, like, standing there at the wake of my partner and having this conversation. I don't know what they were looking for. I don't know... And I'm just standing there with a cup of tea and my friend just sort of walked me away from them. We just left them standing there. It, it's people just felt they had to say something. It, it didn't matter what it was, they just had to say something. And it was like silence could not be. And that, that really became a point where I couldn't find any time to be because everybody was just coming at me with something and there was some angle on the process. So you, you, know, you met Betty. She was your initial... Call yep. and Betty was obviously amazing. Whoever Betty is, thank yep. you, Betty. Thank you, Betty. Um, because Betty handled your grief um, amazingly well. Mm. And then a police officer aff- affirms your relationship, so that's amazing. Thank you to whoever that police officer yep. is. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were other people that did handle the situation um, in a way that was affirming of you. Can you remember anyone and, and what it is that they did? I can't. Wow. It's, um, it's what led me to the next 10 years 
um, before I told anybody or anything. I just bottled it up. It, there was just nothing coming through. Um, my GP, I went to my GP the next morning uh, after he he died um, with chest pains and that. I knew it wasn't a heart attack, but, you know, I needed to check them out. Um, and he, I told him why. He said, why do you think you've got these chest pains? And I told him what had just happened the night before. And he just looked at me and went, okay, well, you need to take it easy. That was it. No medication, no nothing, and walked me out the door. It, it, there was, starting from that point, there was nothing there that sort of said, I, I can be supported, I can feel for you, I can to do anything with this. It became a lot of shame, it became a lot of focus, a lot of blame, uh, a lot of um, demeaning of, of who we were and what we were. Um, I had friends that just went silent. Even though I'd rung them and told them what had gone on, I just never saw or heard from. I ran into several years later and I said, what happened? You know, it's like I heard nothing from you. You know, you were good friends. And and their reason was, well, we didn't want to upset you anymore. It's like, what do you think I was doing? You know, I was sort of like sitting there on my own um, when I needed people and there was nobody around. You're an emotional guy. I know that from my interactions with you and the experiences we've shared together. Is it that your emotions were so raw or you were in such an emotional state that people felt that they didn't know what to do with that? I think it was more um, the... It it was ignorance on their part on that they didn't know how to, to manage the circumstances. And for some it was because I was gay and they just didn't know what that was all about. Um, And for others it was the suicide. So, for example, a lot of his friends were obviously colleagues, work colleagues. Yeah. Um, They just went into an instant, um, how did we miss this? How did we not know? How did we, you know, not be Well, they're trained professionals. They were trained professionals. So it was a lot of, of, my God, what happened here? What what went wrong? Yeah. Um, Then there was um, others that didn't want... um, me to be impacting their life with my my grief and I was told that by one you know we don't want you around you're 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 negative and doing all that it's like where am I supposed to go with all of this um so it it sort of became a a process of boxing it up keeping it all to myself and doing what I had to do um just to keep going each day and to to get out of bed and and do whatever so work became a focus so it was just go to work go to work go to work that was that was it you still had to deal with the ramifications um, of Paul's choice, and that is deal with superannuation firms and you know other um, companies of a similar type. Mm. You, what sort of reactions did you get from them as a, I guess, as a gay couple? Yeah, um, that's not something that they would have to deal with very often. Mm. How did you feel about what happened from that perspective? Yeah. So what what happened was that. Paul and I knew back then that the legislations and the laws that were around didn't guarantee that our wishes after we died had gone away. So we had structured our life in in a way that made sure that... um, So our wills were done so each other was the beneficiary. Our superannuation funds, we thought we'd done it all right and nominated each other as our beneficiaries Um, and and other other places that you could do those things. Um, There's a realisation after somebody dies that they've died but their life is still continuing and you have to end that life and that's the physical things um the the government connections the the businesses that you're associated with and doing all that you have to go around and do the notifications and you have to have the death certificates and you have to have proof of all of that 
And my range of experiences there were from um, one organisation where I rang and I, I told them what had gone on and that I was his partner. They just went into, well, you don't need to do anything, you can just take his benefits. And I just went, sorry? They, there was no acknowledgement that he died. There was no acknowledgement that I was, was grieving or anything else like that. They just went straight into automatic mode. And, and I still remember the lady, she was just blamely telling me, I had no understanding of what she was talking about because she didn't explain it, she didn't do anything. She just went, well, I'll just change his benefits into your name. And I, I'm just like going, no, he's dead. You, you know, it's like, what part don't you get? Um, to um, the, the superannuation fund that, that just basically let me know that just because I, I said I was his partner and we were, had been in together for 11 years and I was his nominated beneficiary, there was no guarantee that I would get any money. Um, if a family member made a, a, an application, then they would be the priority, not myself. Um, to others that were just so kind and, and generous and, and really wanted to make sure that I was okay and, and made the processes a conversation and and doing what we needed to do, um, but still followed up with a letter afterwards just to check on me to see that if there was anything else that I could they could help me with and doing all of that sort of stuff. So there was a real range of what we we went on there, and there was a real lack of um, understanding that because of the estate the way it was, there was no money, so there was no executor. So I had to do all of this individually um, within the process. And there was no recognition that I was actually the person that was doing the suffering and having to go through this process. And my, my suggestion there is that they need to recognise that, A, somebody's died by suicide. His partner's now talking to me. Hang on a sec. There's a big connection there. We need to take a different approach with this and make it more conversational and, and not make it process. We know that this thing's got to be done, but, you know, help us guide. Because at the time, my mind wasn't really necessarily where it should have been. And was I making the right decisions? Could I comprehend a whole lot of things? No. Take a bit of time and make sure that we were able to understand. And that was a classic example. Because the membership that I was ringing up about, they actually have a policy that if you... They were actually recognising us as a couple. That was what she was doing because I was saying I was his partner. I was entitled to take over his, his membership. No, no hesitation. They would just put my name on the membership, and I would continue with the years of service I had with it. But there was no explanation of that, so it was actually was a positive thing, but it was turned into a complete negative because of the way they approached it. Yeah, sure. So, how long went by before you had your own experience with suicide? I guess probably eight or nine months after um, that, there there was a support group that I knew of in Sydney. It was the only one that I knew of. It was run by the state coroner's office, and they met once a month. And I decided that I'd go along to that to, to, to meet other people and see, see what was happening because I was really sort of struggling with my thoughts and my feelings. Um, I, I had never had a thought of, of suicide. No it, thought at all? No. It, it wasn't in my DNA. I, I dealt with a lot of things, but it never got to the point where I thought, you know, I, I'd been down and, and worried about things, but I'd never got to the point where suicide was an option. Um, and, and I went to this group and I, I found that I couldn't even be accepted there, it, my, my grief and my, my loss, because it was a gay thing, you know. It's like it was, it was quite a bit homophobic in, in the groups that were there. Um, the people didn't mean it, but, but they were living with their own grief and it was all a, a bit of a competition as to, you know, who had a greater right to be grieving, you know. It was the, the loss of a husband, loss of a brother, you know, you, you just had a friend. Was there a ranking 
Exactly. That's that's how it felt like, you know. Um, and there were mothers there that had lost their sons and there were wives that had lost their husbands and, and children and things like that. And and my ranking was really quite low. It was, it was just a friend and that's what one person said to me. Um, it, it was probably not long after that, um, within the 12 months, that I, I found myself standing at a cliff in, in Sydney. And I still, to this day, don't know how I got there. I still don't know what drove me to, to that point. Um, but there was some noise or something that made me turn back and look over my shoulder. Um, and it was then that um, I sort of realised where I was and it was that moment, I still remember as clarity, that it was like, what am I doing? And, and I just had to sit down and, and, and contemplate where I was and what was, what was going on. So you don't recall how you got there? You don't recall thinking about going there? No. You'd never had any ideation whatsoever. No. You just found yourself standing in a spot like in a fog. Mm. I, I became completely isolated. I, I had nowhere to go. There was my, my good friends that were with me at the time had all moved away from, from where I was. So they were all up in Queensland now and they were getting on with their lives and doing all that. So I'd become completely isolated. Um, no one understood me. No one, no one got me. Um, you know, it's sort of like put it away, should be over it now, to doing all of that. I'd done everything that I needed to do for his estate. So as I got to the point where I'd received a letter from the state trustee's office, he was finished in the world. We, we had no more to do. There was no more record of him. It was all past now. I had all the paperwork. I had his death certificate. I had the last payments made of, of everything out of the estate. The car had been handed back. The, the mortgage was now mine. All of those things that that identified us as a couple were now gone. There, there was nothing. And there was no one there to recognise that. Um, the three friends that were uh, that were still in touch with me, two were in Queensland, one was, was in, in Sydney. What else was there? There was nothing else. There was no family. There was none of the life that I'd had anymore was now gone. Yeah. And I'd received a piece of paper to say that that was it. That was done. Um, and so to feel that, like, you know, a, a sense of a, of a loss of purpose or a loss of... Loss of everything. There was no purpose, there was no function, there was no reason um, to, to be there. It was like, and everything that I thought was a reason, everything that I had valued about myself had now been questioned, challenged and um, decided that it wasn't worth it or valued um, anymore by, by others. Um, the wrong people that were were valuing it, but that was where I was at the time, had just got to a point where there was there was nothing, there was no connection. Yeah. There were, I had lost, I don't think I'd spoken to another person for a good two to three days. There, there was just nothing um, there. There was no social media back in those days, so there was no Facebook checkups and doing yeah. that sort of stuff um, that you have today. But that I, I only had a little flip phone, um, so there wasn't, you know, no smartphone or anything. And... It was when I turned back um, and, and I, I sat down, um, I got my phone back out and it was going through the phone and looking at the few people that I had in there, thinking I can't put them through what I've just been through. I can't put them through this and that's the only reason why I walked away that night um, and why I walked back to... to and I, I, I don't even know how I got there. I, I couldn't find the car. You know, if, if there wasn't a bus stop there, I just got on a bus and took me back into town and I worked it out from there. 
I don't know how I got there. I, it, it's just a complete blur. Well, thank you for turning around, <laughs> firstly. Um, what happened after that? Obviously, you recognised at that point you needed help. Mm. You, you were not coping. What did you do? It was really quite strange. I, I went about it instead of... Um, I didn't know where to go for the help. I had been in a counselling... Um, so with Paul, before he died, I, I'd started counselling and on the basis that we would get couples counselling and start working on, on where I was feeling. Because with his illness, it became about him. So there was no space for me. So I was trying to create some space for me. Um, and then when he died, the counsellor became a grief counsellor and, and was helping me manage and try to understand what I was doing um, within all that process. So the only person I could go to was her. Also, I've, um, I'd seen what... I was tainted by, by his brush of his experience and of his knowledge of the system. And I'd seen what had happened to people um, who got into the mental health system um, and how badly it, it, it wasn't able to respond to what they needed. Um, and I was definitely, I was afraid to go in there because um, a little bit like him, I'd become um, a fear, fearful of my professionalism, my, my reputation. You know, back in those days, you got tainted with that brush, you, you weren't going to go anywhere. And, and you know, I, my job was and my career was the only thing I had, so I, I tried to protect that. So I, I went around about it in a different way. I didn't actually tell her what I'd done. I, I just went to her and said, I'm just feeling valueless, I, I don't feel anything. And we started a conversation about adding value back to my life and, and who I was and doing all of that sort of stuff. What were some of the steps that she suggested that you do? Can you remember? Yeah, it was, it was sort of like um, remembering the, the, the people and the, the things that matter. Um, to me so getting back into that sort of connection as to why I was actually here um, and what I was doing for other people so you know work was obviously a, a big big driver um, and I, I had a good team at work and they were you know um, they were a great bunch of people so it was about reconnecting with things that that mattered it was also about doing something for myself so um, and and that was I, I planned a trip and I came up to Brisbane and, and Queensland and, and spent time with my friends um, so I went on a bit of a road trip and, and just had time with me and, and um, just you know not thought about anything just it was a holiday it was one of the probably the last holidays I've had in a long time where it was just sort of like slept in at the beach did all those sorts of things so without uh, uh, it wasn't an overseas trip it wasn't an expensive trip it was just have a holiday just being in the moment. Being in the moment, yeah. yeah. And, and trying to um, also dismiss what people had said and, and know that I could change that. It didn't have to be the way that people had said that, um, you know, I wasn't to blame for his um, decision or choice. That took a long time to, to accept that it was his choice and it was his option that he chose to, to take. There was nothing more um, that any of us could do. Um, he, he was seeing the top psychologist in Sydney um, and we would, we would infrequently get to, to see the doctor. Um, and the doctor was in New York when, when Paul died um, and he heard about it. Um, and I, I don't even know how he heard about it, but he heard about it. I got a phone call from him in New York to, to reassure me that he didn't even see it coming and he'd only seen him two to three weeks before. He had no idea that he was he was in that space and, and that I wasn't to, to feel that, you know, I should have seen this happening and, and should have been able to... We wouldn't have been able to do anything. 
I'm sure that was very reassuring for you. It was. And it's one of the conversations that I remember that, it, and, and I started replaying that back um, yeah. and, and telling the counsellor. And she said, well, that's, that's right. You have to talk. But it's hard to accept that when somebody does make this choice and option. Um, it, it, it's a hard thing when everybody else is looking at you going, what about you? Why weren't you there? Why didn't you stop this um, from, from occurring? We always ask two questions on Rose's radio to finish off. Uh, the first of those is, what do we need to do uh, to change the way that society deals with suicide? Yeah, look, that's, um, as you know, that's something that we, we ponder and talk about all the time. I think that um, the power of the lived experience um, has to start coming into, into people's decision-making processes and doing all of that sort of stuff. Um, it, it was only a... 18 months, two years ago, when I finally told my story to a bunch of strangers. That, that was the first time in 10 years that I'd actually shared a, and actually done anything with them. What was that like for you? It, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It, it, the, the crazy thing was, uh, and I, I think I remember listening to yourself telling part of your story and going, I think like that. I thought like that. I had those feelings. And I, I'd been bottling them up thinking I was just an absolute nutter and I couldn't possibly tell anybody <laughs> those things because they would take me away. But it was all natural. Yep. And I, th- I think that what we, we don't do enough of is we don't understand where people are sitting and how to best manage them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not medication. Um, it's not locking them up. It's about getting them to reconnect and re- re-figuring out where they belong in the, in the picture and, and why they need to be here. And I think we're missing too many opportunities to do that. Okay. What's the message you'd like to put out to those who might be grappling with suicide, either bereavement or ideation, um, this very issue right now? What, what would you tell them? I what, I, what I'd tell them is that um, sit down and go through your phone. Figure out why those people are in your phone um, and, and understand what you mean to them and why you're there. Um, it's a simple step. If you don't have a phone, your Facebook page, whatever it is, just go back to your list of who's connected to you and figure out why they're connected and start figuring out where it is that it's there. Um, you don't have to do anything, but it's a simple step that you can do for yourself that, that just re- reinforces that you are meaningful in somebody's life and there will be an impact if you, if you go down this path and that you can, you can turn this around. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Um, Mark, you are a thoughtful and generous and sensitive man and you are doing a lot in our community to help spread the word on what we can do in our communities uh, around suicide prevention. So we're very grateful for that and we're very grateful that you've shared your story and I'm sure that there are many people out there who are going to take away some amazing lessons uh, uh, from your wisdom and insight in this particular case. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Lane. It's been a pleasure. In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. 
If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300 411461. Hey, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.